guess everybody here is a dignitary, and I appreciate your, your help. And by the way, I am serious about the food. Bring in, don't don't no, slow down. No, no, just come in, clear the place, places, and, and uh, uh, but Hillary has to be your beats. you might have. Uh, occasionally, as, uh, as I did just a moment ago, I get envelopes like that, which is, and I'll open this, and there'll be campaign ideas. Why don't you talk about the following issue? So I'm happy to take advice, and then we can all vote on whether it's a good piece of advice or bad advice. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get a chance to do that, but I, I'm, I'm looking to get your, your perspectives. i uh, just tell you a couple of things you may not know about me. Um, uh, you probably know that I'm father of five and, and grandfather now of 18. My uh, oldest son just had, had two uh, had twins uh, just last week. And uh, so our, our grandchild nest is getting larger, and they're a source of great joy. When I was, uh, uh, when I was probably halfway through my career at Bain Consulting, I met with a lawyer to draft a will. And, uh, and she said, how do you want to divide what estate you might eventually have? And I said, I'd love to have anything at that point. I said, I want to divide it equally among my five sons. And she said, well, how much will you want to give to the grandchildren that they will ultimately have? And I said, well, I don't want to give anything to, that, to the grandchildren. I'll, I'll give it to the sons, and they in turn will give it to their, their children as needed. And she said, you'll change your mind. I said, no, no, I don't think so. So I saw her not long ago, and I said, I don't want to give anything to my sons. I want to give <laughs> Those that don't know Elizabeth Warren 
She is the woman who's running for U.S. Senate in Massachusetts, who, who, who said that she's Cherokee, and has put in her application over the years that she's Cherokee, and Harvard put down that she's one of their minority uh, faculty members. It turns out that at most she's 132nd and even that can't be proven. So uh, in any event, uh, yeah, I can put down, my dad was born in Mexico and leave it at that. But, uh, but his, his dad was in construction, very successful in Mexico, but in America went broke more than once. So my dad never had the money or time to get a college degree. Uh, without a college degree, he became head of a big car company and ultimately a governor. And, and believed in America, uh, believed in the opportunity in this country, uh, never doubted for a moment that he could achieve his dreams. And Ann's dad, my wife's dad, was born in Wales. Uh, his dad was a coal miner. This coal miner got injured in the coal mining accident, uh, realizing that there was no future there for him or his four children. He came to Detroit and uh, worked in the auto factories until he could save enough money to bring his kids over, which he did. And, uh, and then they got together as a family and said, you know, to be successful in America, you've got to get an education. And they couldn't afford an education. And the kids and the parents said, you know, if we all work and we all save, we could afford to send one of us to college. And they, they sent my wife's dad. Can you imagine working every day, taking a couple of jobs and saving your money so that your brother could go to, I mean, I would never do that for my brother. <laughs> So he went to college and got a degree at the General Motors Institute of Technology, which, which is one of these programs where you work a semester and then you go to school a semester. And, and, uh, and then after it was over, he started a little company and became more successful. And he was able to hire his brothers and his brother-in-law and, uh, and provide for them in an extraordinary way. By the way, both, both my dad and Ann's dad did quite well in their lives. Uh, but when they came to the end of their lives and, and passed along inheritances to Ann and to me, we both decided to give it all away. So I have inherited nothing. Everything that Ann and I have, we, uh, we earned the uh, old-fashioned way. And that's by hard work. And, uh, and I see that only you just lost the antidote for a second time. <laughs> Because people want so badly to come work in this factory. 
that we have to keep them out or they'll just come in here and start working and, and, and try and get compensated. So we, this is to keep people out. And they said, actually, at Chinese New Year, as the girls go home, sometimes they decide they've saved enough money and they don't come back to the factory. And he said, and so on, on the weekend after Chinese New Year, there'll be a line of people, hundreds long, outside the factory, hoping that some girls haven't come back and they can come to the factory. And, and so as we were experiencing this for the first time, we came to see a factory like this in China some years ago. The, the main partner I was with turned to me and said, you know, 95% of life is settled if you're born in America. This is, uh, this is an amazing land. And, and what we have is, is unique, and fortunately it is so special, we're sharing it with the world. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm concerned about the future, but also optimistic, as I said, and I, I, I look forward to getting America back on track and, and, having, uh, and having people uh, plan on, uh, on, on bringing their, uh, their ideas and their dreams to this country. We need big dreamers, by the way. Oh, I just, just, we didn't talk about immigration today. Gosh, I'd like to bring in more legal immigrants that have skill and knowledge. I'd like to staple a green card to every PhD in the world and say, come to America, we want you here. Instead, we make it hard for people who get educated here or elsewhere to make this their home. Unless, of course, you have no skill or experience, in which case you're welcome to cross the border and stay here the rest of your life. It's a very strange setting uh, run by people who don't understand that we're in a global competition of ideas. And, uh, uh, and our idea has to win, but only if America remains strong. Well, with that as an introduction, um, I, I'm going to turn to you for counsel, advice, or questions, policy questions. Want to talk about tax policy uh, or uh, or political questions? How I win, please. One comment, Governor. Yes. Uh, the debates are going to be coming, and I hope at the right moment you can turn to President Obama look at the American people and say, if you vote to re-elect President Obama, you're voting to bankrupt the United States. I hope you keep that in your quiver, because that's what's going to happen, and I think it's going to be very effective. It's funny that. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's interesting. There's a, the former head of uh, Goldman Sachs, John Whitehead, uh, was also the former head of the New York Federal Reserve, and uh, and I met with him and he said, as soon as the Fed stops buying all the debt that we're issuing, which they've been doing, the Fed's buying like three quarters of the debt that America issues. He says, what's that, what's that over? That's over. He said, we're going to have a failed treasury auction. Interest rates are going to have to go up. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're living in this borrowed fantasy world where, where the government keeps on borrowing money. You know, we, we borrow this extra trillion a year. We wonder, well, who's, who's loaning us the trade? The Chinese aren't loaning us anymore. The Russians aren't loaning it to us anymore. So who's giving us a trillion? And the answer is, we're just making it up. The Federal Reserve is, is just taking it and saying, here, we're giving it. It's just made up money. And, uh, and this, this does not augur well uh, for, uh, for our economic future. Now, not, not, you know, some of these things are, are complex enough. It's not easy for people to understand. But your, your point of saying bankruptcy usually concentrates the money. Yeah, George? Governor, to your point on complexity. Yeah. How, as you travel around America and talk to people in larger groups and perhaps people with different backgrounds with people in the room, to what extent do people really understand that we're hurtling toward a cliff? And to what extent do people really understand the severity of the, of the, of the fiscal situation we're in? Do people get it? They, they don't. I mean, by and large, people, people don't get it. Uh, people in our party, in part it's our fault because we've been talking about deficits 
is going through what it's going through, and they read about France and Italy and Spain, has, has finally made this issue topical for the American people. And so when you do polls, and you ask people what is the biggest issue in the 2012 election, number one is the economy and jobs by a wide margin, but number two is the deficit. And, uh, but, but debt and the, that doesn't, that doesn't calculate for both, but the deficit does. They're, they're, they recognize you can't go on forever like this. Although, the people who recognize that tend to be Republican. And the people who don't recognize it tend to be Democrat. And what we have to get is that five or ten percent in the middle who, who sometimes vote Republican, sometimes vote Democrat. And, and have them understand how important this is. I, it's, I mean, it's a challenge. I mean, I, I did the calculation uh, for folks today. And USA Today publishes this every year. It's a front page story. The, the headline, once a year, but somehow escapes people's attention. And that is, if you take the, the total national debt and the unfunded liabilities of Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid, the amount of debt plus unfunded liabilities per household in America is $520,000 per household. It's like 12 times their income, right? At least. 10 times yeah, yeah, 10, 12 times their income. And, uh, uh, and, and even though we're not going to be writing a check for that amount per household, they're going to be paying the interest on that. You will be paying the interest on that. <laughs> because we will, my generation will be long gone, and you'll be paying the interest. And so you'll be paying taxes not only for the things you want in your generation, but for all the things we spend money on, which is just, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary to think that tax rates, someone calculated what would happen if we don't change Medicare or Social Security. The tax rate, you know what the payroll tax is now, it's 15.3%. If we don't change those programs, that tax rate will have to ultimately rise to 44%, the payroll tax. Then there's the income tax on top, which the president wants to take to 40%. Then there's state tax in most states, and uh, sales tax, and so you end up having to take 100% of people's income. And yet the president, three and a half years in, won't talk about reforming Social Security or Medicare. And when the Republicans do, it's the, oh, you're throwing granny off the cliff. It's like, you're killing the kids. The, the biggest surprise that I have is that young people will vote for a Democrat. They look at this and say, holy cow. The only guys that are worried about the future of our country and our future are Republicans. But the, the Democrats, you know, they, they talk about social issues, drawing the young people, and, and they vote on that issue. It's like, uh, I mean, there won't be any houses like this if, uh, if, uh, if we stay on the road we're on. Please? Yeah. I heard a, I heard a voice. Oh, I'm sorry. Please.
Iran is an unthinkable outcome, uh, not just for our friends in Israel and our friends in Europe, but also for us. Because Iran is the state sponsor of terror in the world, has Hezbollah now throughout Latin America, Hezbollah with fissile material. Uh, I mean, if I were Iran, if I were Iran, I mean, and, and, and a crazed fanatic, I'd say, let's get a little fissile material to Hezbollah, have them carry it to Chicago or some other place, and then if anything goes wrong or America starts acting up, we'll just say, hey, guess what? Unless you stand down, why, we're going to let off a dirty bomb. I mean, this, this is where we head, where America can be held up and blackmailed by Iran, by the Mullahs, by crazy people. So, uh, so we really don't uh, have any option but to keep Iran from having a, a, a nuclear weapon. Um, I'll give the specific on Iran, and then maybe talk more broadly about foreign policy. The specific on Iran is, uh, we should have put in place crippling sanctions at the beginning of the president's term. We did not. He will say, yes, but Russia wouldn't go along with us. Well, he gave Russia their number one foreign policy objective. For a decade, all they've cared about is getting the missile defense sites out of Poland. And he gave them that, and got nothing in return. He could have, I presume, gotten them to agree to crippling sanctions against Iran. He did not, which is, in my opinion, one of the greatest foreign policy errors of the modern time. Um, uh, and by the way, if he, if, if he could not have gotten that from Russia, he should have kept the missile defense sites in Poland, uh, just to keep a bargaining chip on the table. I mean, you know, put nothing in him if he wants to. I mean, I would have kept, I would have kept him. I would have traded him away, but that's, that's where he was. Number two, we should have been aggressively supporting the voices of dissent in Iran. And when there was an effort towards revolution there, we should have been aggressively supporting it. And finally, we should have made it clear, at least by now, that we have military plans to potentially remove their, their nuclear capabilities. That doesn't mean we actually pull the trigger, but it means that we have we communicate to them that we're ready to, to do so, and that it is unacceptable to America to have a nuclear run. Instead, what this administration has done is communicate to the Iranians that we're more worried about Israel attacking them than we are about them becoming nuclear. It's just, it's extraordinary. So uh, th those are those are some thoughts directly at Iran. I'll, I'll step back on foreign policy. The president's foreign policy, in my opinion, is formed in part by a perception he has that his magnetism and his charm and his persuasiveness is so compelling that he can sit down with people like Putin and Chavez and, and Ahmadinejad and, and they'll find we're such wonderful people that they'll go along with us. And, uh, and they'll stop doing bad things. And, and it's an extraordinarily naive uh, perception. And it has led to uh, uh, huge errors in, in North Korea, in, in Iraq, uh, obviously in Iran, in Egypt, uh, around the world. Um, my own view is that, that the centerpiece of American foreign policy has to be strength. Everything I do will be calculated to increasing America's strength. When you stand by your allies, you increase your strength. When you attack your allies, you become weaker. When you stand by your principles, you get stronger. When you have a big military that's bigger than anyone else's, you're strong. I want to, when you have a strong economy, you build American strength. For me, everything is about strength. And, and communicating to people what is and is not acceptable. Uh, it's speaking softly, but carrying a very, very, very big stick. And this president instead speaks loudly and carries a tiny stick. And, and that, that is, uh, you know, that, that's not the right course for a foreign policy. I, I saw Dr. Kissinger in, in New York. You're not eating. <laughs> I'm mesmerized. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's for the tears. <laughs>
<laughs> I saw Dr. Kissinger. I said to him, uh, how are we perceived around the world? And he said, one word, weak. And then, and then come a couple of thorny questions. And I, I don't have a map here to look at the 
geography. But, but uh, the border between Israel and the West Bank is obviously right there, right next to, to Tel Aviv, which is the, the financial capital, the industrial capital of Israel, the center of Israel. It's uh, what the border would be, maybe seven miles from Tel Aviv to what would be the West Bank. Nine miles. Okay, I came close. Nine miles. Um, the challenge is the other side of the West Bank. Don't go ahead The other side of the West Bank. The other side of what would be this new Palestinian state would either be Syria at one point or, or Jordan. And, and of course the Iranians would want to do through the West Bank exactly what they did through Lebanon, what they did uh, in the Gaza which is the Iranians who want to bring missiles and armament into the West Bank and potentially threaten Israel. So Israel, of course, would have to say, that can't happen. We've got to keep the Iranians from bringing weaponry into the West Bank. Well, that means that who? The Israelis are going are to uh, uh, patrol the border between Jordan, Syria, and, and this new Palestinian nation? Well, the Palestinians would say, oh, no way. We're an independent country. You can't, you can't, you know, guard our border with other Arab nations. Uh, and then, how about the import? How about flying into this Palestinian nation? Um, are we going to allow uh, military aircraft to come in and, and weaponry to come in? And if not, who's going to keep it from coming in? Well, the Israelis. Well, uh, the Palestinians are going to say we're not an independent nation if Israel is able to come in and tell us what can land our airport. These are Problems. They're very hard to solve. And, and I look at the Palestinians not wanting to see peace anyway for political purposes, uh, committed to the destruction and elimination of Israel and these thorny issues, thorny issues. And I say, there's just no way. And so what you do is you say you, you move things along the best way you can. You hope for some degree of stability, but you recognize this is going to remain an unsolved um, problem. I mean, we, we live with that in, in China and Taiwan. All right, we have, we have a, a, a potentially uh, volatile situation, but we sort of live with it. And we kick the ball down the field and hope that ultimately somehow something will happen and resolve it. We don't, we don't go to war to, to try and uh, resolve it imminently. Uh, on the other hand, I got a call from a former Secretary of State. I won't mention which one it was. Um, uh, but this individual said to me, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a prospect for for a, a settlement between the Palestinians and the Israelis uh, after the Palestinian elections. I said, really? And, uh, you know, his answer was, was yes. Uh, I think there's some prospect. And I, and I didn't uh, delve into it, but, you know, I always keep open. I mean, I always keep open the idea. But I, I have to tell you, the idea of pushing on the Israelis to give something up, to give the Palestinians, to get the Palestinians to act, is the worst idea in the world. We have done that time and time and time again. It does not work. So, so the, the, the only answer is show strength, again, American strength, American resolve, and if the Palestinians someday reach a point where they want peace more than we're trying to put, force peace on them, then it's worth having the discussions. But until then, it's just, uh, it's a special thing. You guys sit down. I mean, don't you notice afterwards? Please, don't you want to take like 12,000 that slide. No, I'm I am very concerned about the average American who doesn't know you. Uh, there is a, a terrible misconception, and I spent numerous hours trying to, I hate to 
feeling that you wonder when you are such a deserving individual. Years and years ago, uh, I called George Bush Sr. and he had helped me in my campaign in Massachusetts when I ran for Senate. I told him that there is a guy named Clinton who's going to him for the following reasons, and he laughed. Right now, I'm very concerned. Women do not want to vote for you. Uh, Hispanics, majority of them do not want to vote for you. College students don't. Uh, after talking to them and explaining and rationalizing on a one-on-one -on -one basis, we are able to change their opinions, but on a mass level, how, how, what do you want us to do, this group here, as your emissaries, going out to convert these individuals to someone who's obviously going to be such an incredible asset to, to this country? Do you want you? Well, what do we do? Just I tell have, us I how have, we can help. I have some good news for you. It's not impossible. And the reason I say that is, for instance, the New York Times had a poll last week, New York Times and NBC, and I was leading by two points among women. All right, now the president came out and said this is an outrageous poll, they don't know what they're doing, but by the way, the polls at this stage make no difference at all. But the point is, women are, are open to supporting me, they like the president perfectly, but they're disappointed. They're disappointed with the job that they're seeing for their kids, they're disappointed with their own economic standing right now. So we we can we can capture uh, women's voters. We're having a much harder time with Hispanic voters. And and if the Hispanic voting bloc uh, be, becomes as committed to the Democrats as the African American voting bloc has in, in the past, why well, we're we're in trouble as a party and I think as a nation. Rubio.
unleashing his campaign, new campaign, and we're still sort of tied. That's very interesting. And and as as encouraging, please. I would just agree with that. I think a lot of young children coming out of college feel they were let down by the president. And feel that there's not a job out there for them. And I thought they were going to make sixty thousand. Now they're making thirty thousand. You know, very similar to the U six. Yeah, yeah. My question to you is, why don't you stick up for yourself? To me, you should be so proud of yourself. That's what we all aspire to be, kill ourselves. We don't work in our time. We're away from our families five days. I'm away from my four girls five days a week in Hawaii. Why not stick up for yourself and say, why is it bad to be a, to aspire to be wealthy and successful? You know, why is it bad to, uh, to uh, kill yourself? And why is it bad to cut 30 jobs that protect 300? And when people talk about you cutting jobs, you save companies that were stripped, that were failing in terms of money. These two So my question is, when is that? to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. 
that that's it's an entitlement, and the government should give it to them. And they will vote for this president no matter what. And, and I mean, the president starts off with 48, 49, 48. He starts off with a huge number. These are people who pay no income tax. 47% of Americans pay no income tax. So our message of low taxes doesn't connect. And he'll be out there talking about tax cuts for the rich. I mean, that's what they sell every, every four years. And, uh, and so my job is not to worry about those people. I'll never convince them that they should take personal responsibility and care for their lives. What I have to do is convince the 5 to 10% in the center that are independent, that are thoughtful, that look at voting one way or the other, depending upon, in some cases, emotion, whether they like the guy or not, what, they, what it looks like. I mean, it's the, the, when you ask those people, I mean, we do all these polls. I find it amazing. We poll all these people to see where you stand in polls. But 45% of the people will vote for the Republican, and 48 or 49.